picture of uh, civil administration, the place from which uh, authority issues, the place from which the earth will be ruled. But it's the mountain of the Lord's house. The Lord's house is a temple. So this verse is linking a city and a temple. That's the key feature of Zion. It is the temple city. A center of both administration and of worship. The two things combined so that the one who rules in it must be a king in his civil administration but he must be a priest in relation to the temple. So the man who will reign in this temple city must be a king priest. And the only king priests that God authorized in scripture were Melchizedek of Genesis 14 verse 18 as a picture of Christ and Hebrews 7 makes it very clear that Melchizedek was a picture of Christ and the other is the Lord Jesus himself. So even in just an expression like this as you read it in Isaiah 2 and verse 2 it shall come to pass in the last days that the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established. A kingdom and a temple so religious and civil authority are combined in one man who is both king and priest. It's our Lord Jesus Christ. The verse goes on. It shall be established in the top of the mountains and shall be exalted above the hills and all nations shall flow unto it. And many people shall go and say, Come ye and let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. And he will teach us of his ways, and we will walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. And he shall judge among the nations, and shall rebuke many people. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares, and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war any more. O house of Jacob, come ye. And let us walk in the light of the Lord. Therefore, the prophet is now addressing God. Therefore thou hast forsaken thy people, the house of Jacob. Because they be replenished from the east, and are soothsayers like the Philistines, and they please themselves in the children of strangers. Their land also is full of silver and gold, neither is there any end of their treasures. Their land is also full of horses, neither is there any end of their chariots. Their land also is full of idols. They worship the work of their own hands, that which their own fingers have made. And the mean man boweth down, and the great man humbleth himself. Therefore, forgive them not. Now, once again, Isaiah addresses the people from verse 10. Enter into the rock, and hide thee in the dust, for fear of the Lord, and for the glory of his majesty. Note that expression, for fear of the Lord, and for the glory of his majesty. Twice more, Isaiah is going to use that expression in this chapter. Verse 10. Enter into the rock and hide thee in the dust for fear of the Lord and for the glory of his majesty. 
The lofty looks of man shall be humbled, and the haughtiness of men shall be bowed down. And the Lord alone shall be exalted in that day. For the day of the Lord of hosts shall be upon every one that is proud and lofty, and upon every one that is lifted up, and he shall be brought low. And upon all the cedars of Lebanon that are high and lifted up, and upon all the oaks of Bashan, and upon all the high mountains, and upon all the hills that are lifted up, and upon every high tower, and upon every fenced wall, and upon all the ships of Tarshish, and upon all pleasant pictures. And the loftiness of man shall be bowed down, and the haughtiness of men shall be made low, and the Lord alone shall be exalted in that day, and the idols he shall utterly abolish. And they shall go into the holes of the rocks and into the caves of the earth for fear of the Lord and for the glory of his majesty when he ariseth to shake terribly the earth. In that day a man shall cast his idols of silver and his idols of gold which they made each one for himself to worship to the moles and to the bats to go into the clefts of the rocks and into the tops of the ragged rocks for fear of the Lord, and for the glory of his majesty, when he ariseth to shake terribly the earth. Cease ye from man, whose breath is in his nostrils, for wherein is he to be accounted of? Or, verse 22, Cease ye from man, who only has breath in his nostrils, for no man is worthy of trust. And we trust that God will, in his goodness, help us as we think widely again in the scriptures this evening concerning the great days of which this chapter is speaking. We have tried to see in previous evenings how just by going through a chapter like this, the second chapter of Isaiah, Remember, Isaiah is prophesying of things that are in the near future for the southern kingdom of Judah. And he is speaking to them in his prophecy of uh, the days when they will be carried off into Babylonian captivity. They will lose their identity as a nation, but God will not cast them off forever. He will restore them. But we've seen too that in that near prediction, there are also verses which could not be and were not fulfilled in the time of that captivity. Therefore, within the near thing, there is a further and a wider picture involved. And indeed there is. It is a picture of the nation that has yet to be subjugated and subjected to, uh, to the horrors of Gentile invasion more than they have ever known before. That's still future. We call it the tribulation period. The Bible calls it the time of Jacob's trouble. And on this, in this future occasion, the nation will be virtually annihilated. And we might ask, as the nation will one day, if they are the chosen people of God, why does he allow that? 
Well, specifically, that future tribulation for Israel will be God's purpose and God's means of driving that rebellious, proud and haughty nation back into his arms. They, on the one hand, like to boast of their uniqueness and their special status, and yet on the other, they completely reject the God of the nation. It was um, a few years ago now, but I, I was on a train traveling up uh, back home to Scotland, and there was a gentleman sat opposite me who was reading in the Torah. He was reading in, in, in the Hebrew scriptures, and uh, as I could see his book upside down, I was sitting opposite him, I could see him reading, and, and every so often he would glance up. So on an occasion he glanced up, and our eyes met, and I smiled at him, and I said, um, Understandest thou what thou readest? He said, pardon? I said, you understand what you're reading? I said, I put it like that because there was a, a man who was my namesake and um, years ago he saw a gentleman reading the Hebrew scriptures and he simply asked him, did he understand what he was reading? So I see you reading the Hebrew scriptures and so I'm asking you, do you understand what you're reading? Yes, he said, I think I understand it very well. And we got talking, and uh, he, his father was the cantor in um, a rather large synagogue down in London. And so this fellow had been raised in uh, Judaism. So I said, I hope you don't mind. Can I ask you one or two questions? I'm just interested. He said, well, okay. I said, um, I'm, I'm interested in... Messiah. I understand that the concept of Messiah is important to the Jew. Would you tell me something about Messiah? Certainly, he said. And he got quite animated, really, and quite sort of warm to the idea. And this is what he told me, and I wasn't ready for just what he did tell me. And he said, you'll probably be aware that today uh, Israel has got some of the very best engineers and scientists and physicists and doctors and mathematicians and, and really we've got some of the best academics in the world but he said we have this problem uh, that our nation state is not recognized particularly by our Arab neighbors and uh, he said that, that's kind of holding us back but he said uh, I, I believe that one day uh, our right to exist as a nation will be recognized and guaranteed I believe that one day we will come into possession of our land I thought this is good, this is good and then he said when, when the peace has come and we're not having to divert so much time and funds to warfare he said then will be the time for our brilliant young men and their brains and, and all the people we've got. He says they will construct a nation state that will be the envy of the world. And that is Messiah. I said what? A nation state is Messiah? A form of government? Achievement like that? Yes he said. I said, well, I, I understood that in the Old Testament scriptures, your Bible, that uh, Messiah was spoken of as an individual. I said, that's, that's a frequent figure of speech in Old Testament scripture. That you take something that is a concept and you, you kind of humanize it. 
And he says it's just a figure of speech. So that when Messiah is spoken of as a person, it's only personifying that which I have described to you. Anyway, I haven't time now to go into the full details of the conversation. Enough to say that as I pursued the thing, and as I quoted scripture to him, Old Testament scripture, he looked at me more closely and he said, what does a goy, a goyim, what, what, what does a goy know about the Old Testament? And I said, well, I'm only asking you, I'm, do you deny the verses I'm quoting are in the Old Testament? No, no, he said. But he could see the way the conversation was going. And abruptly he just said to me, are you trying to get me to acknowledge that Messiah is a man and that that man is Jesus? I said, I'm not trying to get you to do anything. I'm just asking you some questions, that's all. But anyway, he got very annoyed and he slammed this book shut. He said, I don't want to speak to you anymore. And he, he kind of got up in a bit of a, a rage and he went and stood at the end of the train carriage and glowered at me. And it was quite full, there was a lot of people standing, so eventually you could cut the air with a knife in a way and uh, I don't know who they thought was the more weird, me or him but eventually a young lady, a student, she said um, is he coming back? I said, I don't think so she said, well I'll take his seat then so she sat down and she said, what was all that about? so I was able to tell her what it was all about and just speak to her about the person of Christ and it struck me that here was a young woman who was a Gentile and she was at least interested to hear something of the Christ of God but here was a man brought up in Judaism and, and I don't know how mainstream his idea was but it was just a testimony to the tremendous blindness that has descended upon Israel and the pride that's what Isaiah is speaking of here and almost in frustration, Isaiah says, I've spoken to you about the future glory of the nation, and you love to think about that. But then I have had to confess that the nation is in absolutely no morally fit condition to take up those responsibilities. And then in the last part of the chapter, he speaks about how the Lord will systematically break down the pride and the haughtiness of that nation systematically break it and grind them down until they acknowledge the fear of the Lord and the glory of his majesty that's what the tribulation will do and it will cause eventually that nation to fly into the arms of their God and acknowledge the fear of the Lord and the glory of his majesty so much for the nation we know from Old Testament and New Testament scripture particularly New Testament scripture that the things that happened to them were in samples for us the things that happened physically and literally to the nation of Israel are there on biblical record not so that we can have a history book but so that we can have illustrations of just how you and I can be behaving today before our God just think for a moment of those threefold quotations verse 10, verse 19, verse 21 the fear of the Lord and the glory of his majesty later God would have to send prophets again to the people 
and say to them, if I really am your master, then where is my honour? You call me master, you profess me to be your God, but he says to the people, you don't behave like I am at all. The great danger, and it's oft spoken of in the Old Testament for the people of God, was that they became familiar with God, they became familiar with his goodness to them, and the tendency was always then to tend to think of God as though he were one of them. So, in applying these things to ourselves practically, as we must, I need to look into my own heart tonight, and you do as well, my brother and my sister. We need to look into our own hearts and say, what do we understand? What do I understand about the fear of the Lord and the glory of His majesty? Because the fear of the Lord... I suppose we would link that with the thought of his righteous ways and his government and the glory of the Lord we would associate particularly with his house. So we have these two things again, the civil and the religious as it were, the king and the priest, the fear of the Lord, the glory of his majesty. How much does that really strike my heart? How much does it strike yours? Would it be fair to say, do you think, that today, generally speaking, we have a very low and small estimation of the greatness and the glory of our God. Why would I suppose that? Well, oftentimes our behavior gives us away, doesn't it? You see, once again, we've done it before. On previous evenings, let's do it again. Let's suppose certain things. Let's suppose I stood at the back again tonight and was able to speak to each one of you individually and say, now look, we, we have gathered this evening and uh, whenever the saints of God gather in local assembly capacity, do we believe that we have the presence of God with us? And so, well, of course we do. That's basic. Yes, but do we believe that we have the presence of God with us? If we really believed that the presence of God was with us, would it, would it not bring a tremendous sense of reverence upon us? The fear of the Lord? See, I go back in my mind, and I go back in my Bible, to the first time you ever read of, of the house of God. It's in Genesis chapter 28 and the occasion is when, when uh, Jacob is there at Bethel. He's come to uh, a ruined city on his journey. He's going to make his bed there for the night and he does. And, and as he sleeps he dreams and as he dreams he incidentally dreams the same thing that we saw the Lord Jesus speaking to Nathaniel about in John chapter 1 last night. Remember when we came to the close of the meeting last night? John chapter 1, the Lord speaking to Nathanael, the heaven open, and the angels of God ascending and descending around the Son of Man. That's what Jacob dreamed of in Genesis 28. A way cast up to heaven, and the angels of God ascending and descending. 
And when Jacob woke from that dream, he said, this is a dreadful place. This is a fearful place. This is an awe-inspiring place. He said, God is here, God is present, and I didn't know it. I didn't realize it. Surely, he says, this is the house of God. A most important statement. It's the first time you read of the house of God in your Bible. And yet when Jacob said, this is the house of God, there was no structure there. So clearly the house of God isn't a building of a certain kind. We could speak to people in the wider world of Christendom and say, uh, uh, we're interested in the expression, the house of God. What would it mean to you? And they would say, oh, well, uh, uh, near to where I was born, there was a big cathedral. That would be the house of God. Or they might say, well, my parents used to attend a little Methodist tabernacle. That was the house of God. But you see, when you read your Bible uh, and you find Jacob saying, this is none other than the house of God. There's actually nothing there. If we'd have been with him, we would have observed him, and all there is is Jacob and the stones which had kept him warm in the night, and there isn't anything else. There's nothing there. Jacob, what do you mean? This is the house of God. And he would say, did you not hear what I said first? I said, God is in this place. So Jacob is teaching us in Genesis chapter 28 that the first mighty principle of the house of God is that it's the presence of God. That makes sense, doesn't it? Because, because the house of God through the subsequent years, the house of God would take upon itself or would be given different forms. For example, the house of God in, in the latter chapters of the book of Exodus is the tabernacle. And it's that strange tented accommodation for those sacred vessels. And we could in that day have looked at the tabernacle and said, well, the Bible tells us that that's God's house. But the years would pass <coughs> and the tabernacle would give way to Solomon's temple. That was the house of God. And then Nebuchadnezzar would be raised up of God to destroy that temple and take the people into captivity. And after 70 years, a remnant would return under Zerubbabel and Joshua, and they would rebuild the house of the Lord in Jerusalem. And so we have that rebuilt temple. Then that was the house of God. And in fact, when the Lord Jesus came, after that temple had been altered and changed and had become known as Herod's temple. The Lord Jesus walked in the precincts of that place. He said, my father's house should be a house of prayer, you've made it into a den of thieves. Then later he would say to them, your house, your house is left unto you desolate. So the house of God was the tabernacle, it was then Solomon's temple, it was then the rebuilt temple. And then I read in the New Testament scriptures after the church age began, in Acts chapter 2, 
And after the church flourished, and as Paul the Apostle is writing, and he writes to Timothy down there in Ephesus, and he says to him in 1 Timothy 3, These things write I unto you, hoping to come unto you shortly, but if I tarry, that thou mayest know how thou oughtest to behave thyself in the house of God. Which is church of the living God, pillar and ground of the truth. So that's interesting. Paul is now saying to Timothy, Timothy, that local assembly of Christians that you are gathering with down there in Ephesus has a character of God's house. It's the house of God. That's true of the assembly that gathers here. And of the assembly that gathers in forests where I come from. And all those other assemblies that might be represented here this evening. Every one of them. Now, now notice this. Each assembly is not the house of God. The house of God today is the entire church. Made up of every believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. Ephesians chapter 2 would teach you that. But each local expression of the whole thing. Each local company of Christians bears the character of the whole thing. So Paul doesn't say to Timothy that you may learn how to behave yourself in the house of God. He says that you might learn how you ought to behave in house of God. He's talking about the character of the thing. But we go all the way back to Genesis chapter 28 and we remember that the first principle of God's house, the first principle was the presence of God. The presence of God. If God isn't present, you can call that location whatever you want, but it's certainly not bearing the character of God's house. The presence of God is what constitutes the house of God. These people boasted about it. They even boasted about the temple long after, as Ezekiel records, the glory had departed. However reluctantly, the glory had departed from the temple and they still boasted it was God's house and it wasn't anything of the kind. The glory wasn't there. But if the local assembly of Christians I gather with bears the character of God's house and the character of God's house is based on the presence of God, then the fear of God should be very much in evidence. Do you recall when Paul wrote to the Corinthians that most disorderly assembly? And as he's seeking to bring order upon their behavior, he said, now look, if you observe these things I'm teaching, if you gather together with the godly order and deportment that a local assembly should have, he said the ignorant and the unlearned will come in and they will fall down and they will confess that God is among you of a truth what was it that would cause these people to fall down in reverent worship and acknowledge that God was among these people wasn't the location wasn't the building it was the presence of God can we put hand on heart brethren tonight and say that's how the local assembly is that I'm part of are we ever guilty of simply breezing in and breezing out as though all we're doing is meeting with each other? It's a failing 
amongst many of our younger men and please I'm not here to criticize I did exactly the same thing as a younger man myself and I got corrected for it and I thank God that I did but a common failing can be that we stand to address God on behalf of the company and yet our body language says that we're not addressing the God of heaven at all a common failing sometimes is and it's very natural in one sense we don't know what to do with our hands so we maybe just put them in our pockets but you know probably I don't know I've been out of the secular workplace for a number of years now but I know this if I'd gone in and spoken to my boss and stood there talking to him with my hands in my pockets I would have needed to take them out of my pockets to carry my head away I mean generally speaking we don't go in and speak to the CEO with our hands in our pockets and yet very often we'll do that when we're speaking to God in prayer on behalf of a gathered company see it's not enough to say well man looks on the outward appearance God looks upon the heart no God looks on outward things as well and don't forget we've seen that the church is being used to instruct angels so angels are interested they're watching they're interested in the outward thing as well see please please don't think I'm beating anybody up I'm not I'm not I'm just trying to get us to, to understand that, that there is a need for an outward deportment not artificial not something we drum up not something we write rules about but we just need to look and say does our deportment as an assembly of God's people does it testify to the fact that we really know the fear of the Lord that we are overwhelmed in our spirit by the greatness and the majesty and the glory of the God of heaven I fear that perhaps often that never crosses our minds. The fear of the Lord and the glory of His Majesty. The glory, not of the Lord, but the glory of His Majesty. Glory is a strange thing to try and define, isn't it? Here, the glory of His Majesty is not difficult to understand. It is the outward display of the might and the power and the greatness and the grandeur of the one who is King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And one day when he returns to the earth to reign, that's the glory that men will see. But interestingly, we've thought about the first mention in Scripture of the house of the Lord. The first mention in Scripture of the glory of the Lord is in Exodus chapter 16 and in Exodus chapter 16 the people have been murmuring and complaining they've come out of Egypt they've crossed the Red Sea they're getting a taste of wilderness experience and they're murmuring and they're hungry and they want more food God speaks to Moses he says now you tell the people to go away to their tents and in the morning they will see the glory of the Lord first mentioned in scripture 
So we're interested in this, and aren't we? The first mention of the glory of the Lord. What will they see? They go away to their tents, and we might expect that they would come out of their tents in the morning and see a tremendous radiance. No, wasn't that at all. How was the glory of the Lord first manifested in Scripture? Well, they came out of their tents in the morning, and when they looked, there upon the dew that lay upon the ground, lay the manna. Small, round, and white. This? This is the glory of the Lord? That was the glory of the Lord revealed. First time you ever read of it. And interestingly, when you come to your New Testament, the first time you read about the glory of the Lord is in the beginning of Luke's Gospel. In chapter 2. And there were, angel, there were shepherds keeping their sheep on the hillside, and the, and the angel appeared to them to testify to the birth of Christ, and the scripture says, and the glory of the Lord shone round about them. And the glory of the Lord shone round about as they went to Bethlehem. And reverently speaking, they looked into a manger and they saw a small, round, white thing. They saw a babe wrapped in, sw in swaddling bands. A babe wrapped in linen. And this was the glory of the Lord. See, the glory of the Lord is not always the tremendous outshining of majesty and power. This was what confused the nation so much. When the Lord Jesus was amongst them, they expected their Messiah to, to exhibit all the glory of a mighty conquering warrior. And they missed the glory of the perfect servant of Jehovah. They missed the glory of a sinless man. They missed the moral glory of the only perfect man ever to walk on the sands of time. We, by the grace of God, are privileged in this age and with the help of the Holy Spirit, and so often, particularly maybe on a Lord's Day morning, we're thinking about features of Christ that could only have been revealed by the Spirit of God through the Word. And we're thinking of those moral splendors and glories, which men today would still despise, but which we can share together with God in blessed fellowship. That's true and it's lovely. But how often do we think of the glory of His Majesty? The Lord Jesus prayed before He went back to heaven, indeed before He went to the cross, John chapter 17, that the Lord would, would, would glorify Him, that, the, that God would glorify Him with the glory which He had had with Him before the world was. But you know, it wasn't just that when the Lord Jesus went back to heaven, there was a restoration of the glory which he had veiled in order that he might come into time. But glories have been added to glories. The glory which the Father hath given to the Son as a consequence of his mighty work there at Calvary. And there's a man at the right hand of God tonight, and he has been, he has been taken to the highest pinnacle of glory. God has heaped glory upon glory upon him. In fact, the writer to the Hebrews says of him in Hebrews chapter 1, who being the 
brightness of glory and the express image of his person and upholding all things by the word of his power this is something of the glory of his majesty just words or do they inspire a spirit of awe and worship within me have we with our tendency to be very um, informal these days even the formality of normal personal relationships a lot of that formality has disappeared over generations I'm not saying whether that's good or bad but in many ways in many ways sometimes in the songs that are sung today sometimes in the way men speak you get the impression that they're thinking that the Lord Jesus is altogether such as one of them in fact very often in some circles not that we move in them I think the folks in this room but in some circles men won't even give him his titles this same Jesus preached Peter whom ye have taken and by wicked hands have crucified and slain God hath made both Lord and Christ he's our Lord Jesus Christ there isn't a single record of his disciples ever calling him Jesus sometimes the Bible does refer to him as Jesus simply to emphasize the wonder of his manhood but I hope my dear brother my dear sister that for every one of us the Savior whom we adore and worship is the Lord Jesus Christ these are titles that God has given to him that he's earned at Calvary and one day not only we the church but a wandering world will see the glory of his majesty do we become used to it? those priests of old must have gone in to the sanctuary they, they went through what was called the door of the tabernacle it was a heavy hanging and, and they would have gone through and I suppose the first time a priest ever went into the sanctuary to minister I guess the sight must have taken his breath away you say what the sight of the lampstand on his left or the table of showbread on his right or the altar of incense standing before him no not those things what is it that would have taken away the breath of a priest as he went into the sanctuary to serve God would it not have been that ahead of him hung that tremendous hanging that was called the veil fine twined linen interwoven with blue and purple and scarlet and it wasn't that this lampstand here illuminated that veil it wasn't for that purpose in fact the Bible tells us the purpose of the lampstand was to throw light over against itself it was to illuminate itself no beyond that veil was the holiest of all into which the priest could not enter because the glory of God was resident there but that glory that outshining that representative glory of God that, that was there in the holiest of all can you see it in your mind's eye 
the priest is looking at the veil but behind the veil is a light so intense that no man can approach it it would shine through the veil it would backlight it so that all the beautiful colours of that hanging were brought into relief as Paul would one day write to the Corinthians in that second epistle he would speak about the light of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ that's how he was he was the veil he could say to Philip he that hath seen me hath seen the Father we couldn't look upon that light that unapproachable light and live but the light shone through the veil and it brought all that glory into relief what a wonderful, awesome, breathtaking sight that must have been to the priest as he first went into the sanctuary what about the second time? Hmm, same again third time, fourth time 50th time 100th time is it possible that priestly men went through into the sanctuary and they quickly went about the work of, of dealing with the wicks on the lampstand and if it was the sabbath changing the bread on the table of showbread and maybe, maybe after all that time they never, never even looked up and glanced at the glory of the veil maybe some of us remember the first time we ever broke bread with God's people and there was that heightened sense of the wonder of being brought into the presence of God and being occupied with Christ maybe it was like that the second week and the third and the fourth but what about the hundredth week what about now we've been saved for twenty years and thirty years is there not the great danger that we just come in and we perform and we go out and never be touched by the fear of the Lord or the glory of his majesty and Isaiah said you people have lost it and the only way it's going to be regained is by the Lord allowing you to go into captivity and you're going to be denied these things for so long but one day one day God will bring you back and one day in the future still the nation of Israel one moment suffering desperate awful tribulation beyond our understanding one day they will be virtually annihilated not knowing which way to turn and one great repentant cry will rise to heaven and heaven will open and the whole earth as the Lord Jesus descends in all the glory of his kingship as he descends to establish his kingdom here upon earth there won't be a living soul who won't be overwhelmed by the fear of the Lord and the glory of his majesty in fact says Paul to the Thessalonians in 2 Thessalonians 2 he summarily in a sentence he just dismisses the devil's man, the beast and he dismisses the false prophet and he dismisses their armies and he says they will all be destroyed by the brightness of his coming 
the glory of his majesty. This is the one they last saw, this wicked world. They last saw him as a figure of hatred and shame hanging upon a cross. Anointed with the spittle of men, bruised and battered beyond recognition. And the one they crucified is the one that one day soon we're going to see again. The glory of his majesty. He'll have a name upon his thigh that no man knows. I suppose that for the inauguration of that kingdom, a new name will be announced by which he will be known. No point trying to guess what it is. God hasn't revealed it yet. But one thing we do know is that consequent upon his self-humbling, Philippians chapter 2, wherefore God also hath highly exalted him, given him a name that is above every other name, that at that name of Jesus, not the name of Jesus, but at that name that Jesus bears, every knee shall bow, and every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. Won't it be a tremendous day when the whole world bows in acknowledgement that Jesus Christ is Lord? Do we thank God for his grace that taught us to acknowledge that now in time? Every one of these proud persons here in Isaiah chapter 2, every form of human pride is named there, from the individual to the government to the nation to the military to the commercial. It's all there in that chapter. Every form of human pride, and it's going to be crushed. And every person on the face of this earth is going to bow in acknowledgement that Jesus Christ is Lord. But when he comes forth from those open heavens, the armies of heaven will be with him. With respect, that's not you and me. The armies of heaven are angelic. The armies of heaven will come with him. This is Second Thessalonians chapter 1. The Lord appearing in flaming fire with his mighty angels. He's coming in judgment. And he's coming to tread the winepress of the fierceness, of the anger and the wrath of God. This isn't gentle Jesus, meek and mild. This is the mighty conqueror. This is the king coming to claim his kingdom, to oust the rebellious and to throw down the usurpers. We will be in that celestial city. We will be in that heavenly Jerusalem, in an open heaven, Observing what is going on here upon earth. We will see him subjugate his enemies. We will see the judgment of the living nations that survived the tribulation period. We will see the reward of those who have been faithful. We will see the regeneration of things so that the millennial heavens and earth come into being. And we will see at long last divine order re-established in this world that which Adam overthrew that which the devil through his agents has systematically been destroying and pulling down ever since it's all going to be gloriously restored I must confess 
Even as I sit and think about these things, I have tremendous trouble getting my head around these big, big issues. Very, very difficult, I find, just to just not to comprehend them, but to understand that they're real and they're, they're truly going to happen. And then you come across a lovely little statement in Scripture that just seems to make the whole thing so wonderful. You know what Zechariah says about those days? Well, he says in chapter 14, for example, about the Mount of Olives splitting north and south and a great sea route. And, and, I mean, these are mega things. These are things that are difficult to understand. But he tells us something very lovely as well. The character of that age that the Lord Jesus would establish, he says, the children will play in the streets. It's very simple, isn't it? You think in a, in a prophecy the size of Zechariah, when you think of the tremendous issues with which he is dealing, and he pauses just to say, for simple folk like myself, who can't get their heads around the big things, he says, you know, that day will be one where the children will play in the streets. There won't be any fear on the part of the parents. And there won't be any fear on the part of the children. The whole world will know that there is a king reigning who is righteous and who is all-knowing and who is loving and who is kind. That king has his dual administration. He has an administration in the heavens. It's us, the church. He has an administration on earth. It's Israel, restored. In his omniscience, he knows in a moment, anywhere and everywhere in his kingdom, that someone puts a foot out of place. Because remember, in the millennium, the sin principle will still be there in the hearts of men. That's one of the reasons we're not back here, because it's not in us anymore. It won't be then. But no, those people, though they are declared righteous, who go into the millennium, they've still got the sin principle. People born in the millennium will still have the sin principle. And the sin principle is always, always to disobey. But the moment that a person disobeys divine rule in the millennium, he knows, and his administration is so swift and efficient, that immediate proportionate judgment is felt. That's why he rules with a rod of iron, you see. And men and women will know in that day that there is a king who is a shepherd and he will guide them and he will feed them and he will care for them. The infrastructure of man's proud world today will all have gone. Men will be back in an agrarian society Men will sit under their vine. They will have their donkey tied to the choice vine. It's a wonderful picture of proliferation and of blessing of Sabbath. It's what the millennium is. It's a Sabbath of rest. And all the while the heaven above them is open. And they can see as they look into heaven, they can see that celestial city which will be our home. And they can see in that four square city, every side, three gates, they can see the names of the tribes of Israel written over those gates. 
Not because that's where Israel is, no. But because out of those gates come those angelic beings. They are the messengers. They are bringing instructions from heaven to earth and reports from earth to heaven. The angels of God ascending and descending. This is Genesis 28. This is John chapter 1. This is a picture of a glorious administration in action. The light of the heavenly city falling upon Zion, beautiful for situation upon the earth. And all that awaits this world. Shall we quote 1 Corinthians 6 again? Know ye not that we shall judge angels? Know ye not that the saints will judge the world? Do you believe it? I mean, really believe it. Brethren, do we believe it enough that the knowledge of this would change the way we live today? That's a good test. If the answer is no, then from what we've read in Isaiah chapter 2, we'll not be surprised if God withholds his blessing. We'll not be surprised if God distances himself from us. So that we can preach our hearts out and nothing will happen. And we can hold all the meetings we want, but there will be no real sense of the divine presence. Because time and time and time again, God makes it abundantly clear, he's not interested in outward form alone. He wants that outward form to be a genuine expression of what is in the heart. He's been teaching us in Isaiah chapter 2 that if this is the glorious prospect of his people, it should have a moral effect upon them. And we should recognize that the greatest enemy of the work of God is in my heart and yours, the greatest enemy of the work of God is pride. It's pride that makes us fall out between each other, isn't it? I mean, if I truly, if I truly believe my brother was better than myself, I wouldn't have a proud spirit, would I? And that's what Paul brings out in Philippians chapter 2, let this mind be in you that was also in Christ Jesus, that mind of humility, let each esteem his brother better than himself. You say, brother, I've tried that, it's not easy, you know. How do I esteem my brother better than myself when I know I do more in the assembly than he does? I know I study my Bible more than he does. I know I'm more active in spiritual things than he is. How am I to esteem him better than myself? Well, maybe the best way is you just spend a few moments thinking what Christ has made him. You think what he is in Christ. Then remember the worst that you know about yourself. And you shouldn't have too much trouble esteeming your brother or your sister better than yourself. Why is it that we fall out? Why is it that there is this friction sometimes between the people of God? Is it not pride? 
Is it not pride? Was that not the cause of all the trouble in Genesis chapter 3? Pride raises its head in all kinds of different ways. And God slams it in Isaiah chapter 2. He detests it in the ungodly. How much more will he detest it in his own people? God says, I'll not stand for it. Peter says, doesn't he? Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in due time. <coughs> if we believe, if we believe something of the glorious future that awaits the church, then we have a moral responsibility to examine ourselves in the light of it today. Am I proud? Am I reliant upon the things of this world? Have I lost sight of the reality of the fear of the Lord and the glory of His majesty? <coughs> if I've lost sight of those things, God help me to recover them. Because if I don't recover them through repentance and, and confession, then God will break me. He'll break me down. And he'll break an assembly down. And if necessary, he'll break a nation down. Until they understand that the Lord alone shall be glorified. These things are real. He did it in Isaiah 2. And through that chapter, he's appealing to us tonight. My brethren, my sisters, there's a glorious, wonderful future awaiting us by the grace of God. We must ask ourselves, are we squared up to it morally? Are we the people that we ought to be? And if not, God give us grace just to spend time in the quietness of his presence. Seek to humble ourselves before our God. And see what he can then do through a people that is humble and dependent and usable for his glory. Be good to be with you. The Lord bless you. Shall we pray?